Nice one. Thank you everybody for coming along. I really appreciate it. It's nice to see some new faces. So we've been doing this pretty much every month now for the year. We also had one last, I think it was uh, November. We also did one in June. Plenty of things online and in the land before COVID. A few of us were meeting then as well. And it's been an effort to get together and return and get to know each other in relation to exploring different themes and questions that seem like they're important, right? Or at least partly what I've felt for a lot of my life is that there wasn't somewhere to go on a sustained basis to really wrestle, in my case, with the nature of truth and um, what mattered to me, really. Uh, for For the intensity of that to be welcome, but for that to take place in a way that was caring, in a way that also enabled all the voices present in a way that allowed more of the whole of understanding to emerge because there was a way in which diversity was truly welcome in the sense of participating and understanding together, in the sense of every heart and mind being welcome to truly express how they see and learn how others see as well. And so that's something of the broad orientation that, that, um, you know, draws this together. And this evening, we're meeting in relation to a particular topic, as you all know, if you've seen any of the, of the ads for this. Yeah, the, this, uh, this event is titled Dreams and Psyche in the Age of Technology. And that's a really broad framing in one sense. How do we relate technology to notions like dreams? Yeah, I mean, obviously, psyche is a way to perhaps try and understand in a bit more depth who dreams are happening for. Yeah. But this technology piece, I ask you to, you know, be, um, be, be open-minded and not feel pressure in relation to that. There's a sense in which I feel as though the orienting energy of the, of the exploration and the presencing today is one that I do see um, anchored by a shared approach to understanding and really relating to the significance of dreams um, something that happens for many of us every night and something I think actually can happen for everyone a lot. Um, And it's just so mysterious, hey, it's so mysterious. And I know many of you know that, but it's it's such a fundamental aspect of what we do with actually so much of our time. And yet it's in a way kind of sidelined in much of society. It's just sort of fantasy, right? Like just bullshit or not, maybe actually really really profoundly important and there's a mystery to it which which fascinates me and uh, and this and the seriousness as well and joining in exploration of that and i'm looking forward to this because most months we've had a number of people up here but this time it's just fiona and myself and that gives the opportunity to go a little bit deeper and you know really um, we've got the perfect person with us today for that. Fiona's been coming along to a number of uh, these Voicecraft events anyway, um, and she's got many friends in the space, and I'm glad to call myself one of those as well. And um, Fiona's work relates very much to understanding dreams, and she, she explores them from several different frames, which we'll hear about. There's certainly an anchoring in, um, in, the, in the influence of someone like Carl Jung, and his notions of the collective unconscious, for instance, so we can talk a little bit about archetypes. Um, But a lot of Fiona's work explores the relationship between dreams and and healing, which is quite fascinating. And and as well, Fiona is also a a clinical psychologist. Is that the right right title? Yes. So um, 
that's quite a lot of um, basis from which to come at these kinds of questions. And there's so much here, and there's a lot we'll explore together over the course of the evening. So I think what might be nice now is for Fiona and I to just explore a little bit, you know, question into this. And then in about 25, 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, I'll bring that to a close and say a few more things about what's to come next. We'll break off, we'll have discussion, we'll have conversations together, and we'll come back, and then we'll share as a whole a little bit more, and we can hear what's been presenced in the space. And all of that is optional. There's no forcing on anyone's voice here, but the, the welcomeness is certainly there. Yeah, so thank you all for being here. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Fiona, for being here. How are you feeling? Thank you, Tim. I'm well. I'm not sure. Is this working? Can everyone hear me? We'll just yeah. turn that up a little Thank you, bit. Tim, for giving me the honor of being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. I'm excited about this. So, is it appropriate to begin with a really broad question? Can I ask you what interests you about dreaming? And don't feel like you have to you know what I mean? Give, give, give everything you got. But I'm just curious, why, why are you interested in dreams? So the candidature at Swinburne University encouraged me to start my book tour in this way. So I'll quote what I said to them three months ago. In 1999, I had a series of uh, visions or dreams, you can call them. And in one of them, I communicated with Dr. Carl Jung he was sitting on his chair for a good three hours deep in reflection and he let me know that I needed to do my PhD on dreams, that its significance would help the world understand the psyche and the collective unconscious better, that I would get a full scholarship to study this topic and that I'd be a visionary in the field of consciousness. Not sure about the last bit, but we're getting there. So that's kind of the, the start of the journey of the PhD. Beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting how, how much in um, the story of a few figures who I've been very influenced by, I really enjoyed a book written by a man named Peter Kingsley. The one I read in particular was called Catafalque. He's written many others. He's, um, Peter Kingsley is someone who has as well had dreams about Jung. And, and um, it's interesting how how recurring these are in um, people's lives who feel particularly called to explore his work. There's a sense in which people explore such dreams from a perspective of prophecy. And prophecy is something which already that word in the context of much of science over the last sort of 120 years or so is kind of like, well, hold up a second. What's this whole thing? The future hasn't happened yet. You know, there's going to be many other deterministic or otherwise processes which we're going to take and we don't know what they are yet. So you can't be talking about no prophecy. But how do you relate to that term? And do you have any, is there any sense of that feeling in relation? So um, my preliminary research in my master's program showed unequivocally that um, about 50% of the participants had precognitive dreams. And it became such a um, qualitatively salient process that it was integrated into the memories and dreams questionnaire written by Caroline Horton who's one of my supervisors and so finally finally in the discipline of psychology the idea of prophecy and precognitive dreams and the deja vu experience is becoming much more acceptable as a as a concept and I find it fascinating because in my own experience I've actually dreamt 
each of the nine houses I've ever lived in before being in that house in reality. So I've had a very intimate experience of precognitive dreaming. Yeah. Yeah, it is fascinating. I So as someone who spends a lot of time at least fairly convinced that he's trying to think philosophically, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to understand how to make sense of that, right? And there's a sense that maybe the a particularly analytic part of me that's trying to make sense of it is perhaps actually not necessarily capable of really relating with the whole of what's being present there, or at least the intuitive aspect. So there's some notions being brought in. The way that I relate to that is this idea that consciousness isn't bound by time or space. It can jump. And I've always been a big believer in consciousness being able to do that. I studied um, Jung early on in my years and read many of Jung's books and was fascinated by the collective unconscious. And also during my visionary experience with psychedelics, I found that our consciousness can jump. It's not, not bound by the usual constraints of both time or space. Yeah. Right. So I know that there's a perspective that I've heard you use to scaffold a bit of what you mean here. I know you're interested in the work of Rupert Sheldrake and he'll speak about morphic resonance. And this is a sort of proposal that seeks to sort of suggest how maybe reality is that would make sense of such things as jumping So maybe you could say a little bit about that. And what do you, what do you, how do you relate to something like that? What is that pointing to? Yeah. Um, I guess the experience of your dream self or your future self visiting you in a dream to inform your present self of what's to come I guess the ontological significance of that is quite profound. It can't really be quantitatively measured yet, although I know a few quantum physicists who are pretty close. Um, I think Dr. Haseem's work kind of springs to mind. Um, But experientially, its meaning is that we're informed by our dream self, by our future self all the time. And if we look at Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance, it accounts for that. So in what way does it account for it? The way, uh, let me, I can say a few words, I can say a few words about this. So something, and I'll just take a step out and sort of say a few things about, um, at least the intention is um, for the conversations we'll have later. And in principle, all the conversations we can have here together there's a lot of really um, things I find hard to understand about life. And I've found that in helping each other um, craft what it is we're trying to express and then to get different views on it and maybe go, mm, that's not quite it or ah, that's, that's what the thing is and to try and help maybe the particular person speaking draw that out further, that together we can build more of a sense of understanding and this is a perfect example of course we've got the added challenge in this case of trying to share a little bit that can also include as many people in understanding what it is we're talking about and in speaking about something like morphic resonance we're speaking about a particular theory 
Um, and, you know, there are experiments put forward and there's, there's, there's an essence there to, 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 to wrestle with, a substance. But also it's taking place, that's, that theory is being put forward in the context of many, many ideas about how, the way the world works. And what are we speaking about? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, so that's, 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 so the question is, what is morphic resonance? And that's what I was about to suggest we will try and make sense of together. I would like to say that I don't fully know, and, and, but I'm interested to find out, and I'm interested to find out in relation to other things that as well I don't fully know about, but have a pretty strong, you know, sense. Go ahead, Fiona. Um, so when I started my philosophy journey back at La Trobe in... 1999, um, I came across Sheldrake's um, work quite quickly as many of my contemporaries shared their excitement about how it correlates with Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. And so I did a, a fair bit of research and also stumbled across um, James Lovelock's Gein hypothesis or the, the current the conceptualization of, of the planet as a living entity and organism that has its own consciousness and, and way of existing, co-creating co and coexisting with every animate organic object on the planet. And basically that tied in with my philosophy honours thesis really well because morphic resonance to me reflects the luminous energy field that covers and, and transcribes this idea of a blueprint of consciousness. So, and what I mean by that is that if every living organism shares a, a consciousness with every other living organism, then you've got a, a morphogenic field of ideas and, and resonance and energy and consciousness that connects everything to all together. And how that functions in the idea of dreams is that there are universal archetypes and mythological symbols that are inherently shared by every human being on the planet. Whether we're conscious of it or not, these mythological symbols and archetypes connect our consciousness through the fabric of space and time. And so morphic resonance is the idea that on a fundamental level, we're all connected. Yeah, does that help, Betty? Yeah, beautiful, Fiona. That was really, that was really nice. So I think the, the core of my not knowing about it Maybe now is not the right time. I think that was a really nice, nice description. Classically, we think about mind and matter, and morphic resonance is an attempt to try and scaffold a way of relating to how mind fundamentally is what is connecting us, and it's pervasive throughout organism. And there's many different ways to sort of slice this up metaphysically, and you know, many different people with many different positions. And I certainly have quite a bit to say about that. But just as a like a really as a as an initial go of it, I think it's I think it's extremely interesting. And 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 so maybe let's let's put a little full stop there for the time being and return to the notion of dreams. And part of the reason why I whacked in the in the age of technology piece into all of this. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, is is because my sense is that because of how well technology and science together 
are able to predict the behavior of human beings and um, learn more about our evolutionary structure, what we desire, how sociology works, how different group dynamics work. There's more and more capacity, as we know, to be influenced by things people say to us or show us or nudge us towards. And it seems to me that dreams are a really intimate and private and unique way, necessarily unique, even though we're talking in some sense about universals. I dream, you dream. And that, in some sense, is my experience. And it's, it's barred from others knowing it in the way I can. We can speak about it and we can share a lot about it, right? But there's a sense that dreams are a portal we can use to deepen our knowing of ourselves. And it seems to me that it would be very worrying if the degree to which technology was able to learn about the kind of dreams people have, in particular the motifs in them, the, the symbols, these types of things, um, because they've been expressed throughout art and online in various ways, right? We can speak about mythology and these different things. It's a really, really powerful set uh, of patterns that can be used to nudge and coerce and to learn as well, I mean, many good things about the search for truth. But it seems to me really relevant to consider that we can already come into relation more with the dreams we have and their significance for our lives. And that perhaps if we don't do that, then in many respects, it does, I think it is quite possible that the capacity for empirical work done by technology to come to have such a profoundly asymmetric influence on the patterning of this substrate that is in some sense such a foundational way that psyche, what we are, relates to what there is and ourselves and each other. And so it just seems to me like caring about the process of understanding dreams, caring about the inquiry of it and all that entails seems like a, like a, a real calling of what it is to know oneself, know what one is as, uh, as organism. It's one of the foundational ways that interiority presences in this form. So that's kind of why I'm making that link there. Can we entertain a hypothesis, Tim, or a, a working model? Let's say that, hypothetically speaking, I create a dream interpretation app that records and interprets your dreams, right? Hypothetically speaking, it goes viral, five billion people sign up for it and start entering their dreams into this app on a daily basis. Who would use that information? Is it ethical that they just sign their consent away to use this app? And thirdly, where are we heading in terms of that information being used by pharmaceutical companies, 
um, rental agencies, employers who want to get the data on our secret, private, unconscious life. Yeah, it's just something that I was thinking about as I heard you talking. Yeah, absolutely. I think these are, I mean, there's ridiculously important questions. And I would, to be honest, my, my intention really in relation to that is to maybe put together an event and invite people to it to, to, to share in relation to that question and, you know, to share a little bit of this to those who are interested to also relate to that question. I really do think it's important. So, I mean, I, I certainly have things that come to mind. I wonder again, though, if we can just put a little full stop on that. And I, I would love to give you an opportunity to expand a bit about how you relate to uh, dreams in their relation to healing um, and maybe take that any direction you like. Sure, thanks Tim. Um, so I started my PhD at Swinburne in 2017 and finished my data collection uh, middle, of, middle of 2021. Um, I investigated a sample of 19 people qualitatively so I used various um, dream self-report measures and, and psychometric measures to categorise people into two groups, one who do have a diagnosis of PTSD and the other who don't have a diagnosis of PTSD but um, shared that they'd experienced a traumatic event of some kind. And so emerging from the results, um, there's a number, of, a number of key findings and... The most important finding was that, yes, the role of the symbol or the metaphorical representation inherent in the dream is essential for trauma adaptation, essential for post-traumatic growth and meaning-making. And um, based on, on that finding, um, I've created, a, I guess, the MAD model, the model of adaptive dreaming, and basically... Um, how we heal trauma through the use of dreams um, is potentially an area of the discipline that hasn't been explored yet, even though we've been using dreams for millennia. And um, in terms of understanding what makes a dream adaptive, you're looking not just at the symbol, but in the emotions that are evoked upon waking, in how you process those emotions and what categorises a nightmare as distinct from an adaptive dream is that the adaptive dream has a, often a very obvious uh, symbol that presents itself to the conscious waking individual that then allows them to process and integrate unresolved trauma and, and leads to prevention of PTSD in this sample. So whilst further investigations would need to be done to improve reliability and validity, I've got some preliminary findings that these dreams tend to prevent development of PTSD in these individuals, which is really interesting and I'm very excited. Yeah, it's so interesting. So is much of your work then about exploring or speculating about why it is? that dreams have this adaptive value? Uh, to, to an extent, the, the four 
adaptive processes that are identified in the literature include uh, meaning making from the symbol, processing the relevant affect associated with the traumatic event, um, obtaining clarity and insight gains through the safe incubator method of the dream. And then the fourth kind is threat simulation dreams. So most of the nightmares that were found adaptive were threat simulation dreams. And that was quite an interesting finding as well. Yeah, right. So they, they do, they heal along those four different processes. Hmm. So what's coming to mind for me, and this is the kind of thing I would share very much in, in a group setting, not because they're necessarily fully furnished thoughts, although I could get on a flow and really explore them, but words that are coming to mind are words like wholeness or whole-making, and then I think about an orientation toward wholeness, toward connection, toward and about disparate aspects of life, finding some kind of cohesion so that I'm walking along and now all of a sudden a particular experience maybe activates a certain state of my nervous system and I just have a sense that over there is a bit of like a lifeboat or something. Yeah. There's something I know that actually connects me and this feeling to a state where I can understand it a bit more. I'm not as afflicted by it. I'm not sort of more like unmoored completely in an ocean. I have a sense of where a port is. And there's something about, I think, how, well, how the, how the psyche presents its own wholeness to itself and its own confusion to itself that seems deeply representative of our um, development and cultivation of who we are. So there are some things like to, to explore what does that mean for you? you know, what, are those, what are some of those words mean for you? Um, yeah, so I think Freud said something along the lines of dreams are like the royal road to the unconscious. And Jung also agreed that dreams are a very integral part of individuation and, and seeking wholeness. So if, when I'm witnessing you talk just then, I'm hearing that dreams are a bit of a portal, a bit of a tool for psychological healing and movement towards wholeness. And the meaning-making research um, that was covered in my thesis um, lends support to that idea that we make meaning of these dreams and then that meaning-making leads to the path to wholeness or individuation. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I'm wondering what else there might be to share that might fill in any gaps or perhaps offer a bit of grounding to some of what we've brought forward. I feel like there's quite a lot there. I'm just wondering for a way to go at that. Perhaps it's something to do with the notion of the collective unconscious and what that's, and, and, and for people to maybe get a grasp a little bit on that kind of language. It speaks again to 
some, in a way, a kind of a connecting context that in part we each animate through <laughs> our being in the world. There's a deep sort of participation in it and at the same time we're sort of furnished by it as organism. But I just sense that maybe some of the ways I speak about these things might not be actually the most helpful to explain them. And so how important is thinking about the collective unconscious to your work and how relevant is it in this to try and help us understand why it is that dreams can be adaptive? I feel that in, in understanding our own personal unconscious, we're able to get, we're able to shed some light on the path ahead or where we're going and, and, and what we're doing in this current reality. So to understand it as a collective unconscious seems to indicate to me that it's a collective responsibility to understand consciously how we relate with each other, where we're going and the path ahead. And dreams are one of those ways in which we can make sense of our personal reality while still holding the collective vision ahead. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I, I think questions would actually be great. What I will do is... Yeah, yeah, I've uh, got this ready. Hello. Um, I guess I find that dreams are really incredible and hold a lot of symbolism, but our culture doesn't really hold much symbolism, so it's hard to translate it in a culture that is really devoid of symbols. So I guess I just wonder if you have anything to speak on about how to start entering what symbols mean when you grow up in a culture that's very linear and doesn't really understand that circular relating or understanding. Beautiful. Any question like that, I am so happy to riff on. Uh, I can guarantee you that whatever I'm about to say is not going to come across in any linear way of like, here's like how to do it. <laughs> okay. What is a symbol? So part of the way I relate to symbol, and again, I'm sure many people will have a much better way of referring to this and might disagree. Part of how I relate to symbol is it's something like it's something like a profound kind of compression where there's been so much energy, life and life and death process, yeah, hopes and dreams and fears, lives lived, communication made, yeah, battles won and lost, you know love shared, heartbroken, and then all of a sudden, intermixed with that process and the gradual cultivation of a coming to consciousness about the nature of being, in this case, for, for instance, perhaps even to speak of anything in isolation is almost ridiculous. In some sense, symbols are trying to provide profound, like, particularizations that can represent the general and so that's and it's a really interesting thing right so in a sense um, whatever we are as intelligence as human beings we know we're part of a process that's organismic intelligence in becoming and so we've got a little time slice of what it is to be human 
We go back two million years, a little less human, a little more something else. But many of the patterns of behavior, we can think about it from an evolutionary perspective, are in many ways very similar to now. So these deep adaptations, these deep grooves of becoming, in some sense, um, produce over time, through many stories, many efforts, we get to something like Christianity, and we have the notion of the cross eh, as, like a, as this profound symbol, and people wear it around their neck, and it sort of hits you, and it means something, right? And it means many different things to many different people, and at the same time, there's obviously a deep through line. And then also you can think about something in the, in the world of science, you can think about like E equals MC squared. It's a profound compression, and it means a lot to us. And it's in part uh, a result of a historical knowing process that has produced a profound way to compress patterns of intelligibility to a particular group of people. And it affords a kind of, well, kind of collective understanding that can also be used by individuals to grasp the world in various ways. The question's about um, how do we relate to symbol now when maybe thinking about uh, them is, is not so prevalent in culture. When of course, really, um, we're sort of steeped in, the, in them always. We're steeped in them always. So for me, where I would go to address it is something like, um, you know, how can we create context in our lives with each other where it's possible to slow down and relate with what matters, really. Um, and in many respects, I feel as though the, like a, a deep contemplation about, you know, name your symbol or archetypal motif. I was thinking about sharing, you know, maybe some dreams I've had recently today. And I asked Taryn about it and she's like, well, maybe not. And it might have been, you know, maybe nice to offer some personal sense, but it's like, bloody hell, which one do I choose? Because how much am I, it's kind of vulnerable to do it, right? Because they're so steeped in symbol and imagery, which says a lot about me and where I'm at. So in that sense, to contemplate symbol, if it's important, can be a vulnerable process. Therefore, how much, like the question would be, how much does culture actually support being vulnerable together, really, and being in relationship with the kind of, um, you know, incisive ways to unburden and unlock patterns of understanding, which can then shine the light on a whole bunch about the way culture might work and about how we might be treating each other which all of a sudden is profoundly significant. And so in that sense, you know, symbols, there can be, you know, portals to the transcendent beyond the trance of a given fixation, but they can also become profound ways to lock people into particular framings. We're only going to pay attention to these symbols in these particular ways. So it's a very curious thing. Um, I, I do feel as though uh, if... If it's even possible to become more conscious about how to relate to the deep symbology of our nature, then, um, well, it's something that we have to, um, I think, undergo with a great deal of, um, undergo with a great deal of care. Yeah. Just a reflection, um, on the importance of the symbol, I think it comes down to um, how we're educated to look and interpret symbols in general. For example, 
the big McDonald's sign is always going to be comfort food for me because that's what I was exposed to as a little girl. Whereas, you know, the crucifix is such a profound symbol of Christianity, but on many levels, for me, it's a symbol of suppression of the feminine. So um, I, I just wanted to add to what Tim was sharing that we we get called to interpret symbols when when it's needed, when it's when it's salient, when it's personally relevant, and we either choose to interpret the symbol or we go about in an unconscious slumber. You know, there's that quote from Waking Life, are uh, you sleepwalking through your wakefulness or wake walking through your dreams? So for me as a Jungian, I see symbols everywhere. They inform me on multiple levels and they inform me when I'm asleep and I'm dreaming. So I think that's... Yeah, beautiful, Fiona. I yeah. think that's super important. I think the many interpretations aspect, and I think particularly from the perspective of, of healing, um, and I think so critical in response to that question as well, is can we, can we actually... Um, can we hold open? Can we be open? Can we really participate in the interpretation of symbol? There's something about being locked in a particular interpretation. It, it, to me, it depends very much on being educated as to what to think rather than being educated as to how to think. I see it come back to that idea in right. philosophy. We're taught how to think, whereas in most of postgraduate education, we're taught what to think. Yeah, absolutely. And that feeds very much back into this, um, the vulnerability of the process. And again, to touch on the, the meta theme of really all of this effort is that I do believe it's possible to be part of context that can support each other in that thinking process. So maybe, does anybody else have a question? Um, it's not really a question, but um, I think, was it Lucy? I was just getting an interpretation of, maybe it was Lucy, what the other question was, and um, seeing that as maybe also um, being saturated in collective symbolism, but maybe losing the ability to form, to create personal symbolism, um, and to, you know, because I see it in the opposite way that we're actually being um, bombarded by symbolic imagery, but it's usually coming from some extractive source that wants us to purchase something or to identify with something rather than from a personal curiosity. So, yeah, just splitting those two of personal and collective. But it wasn't a question, so... Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. We'll bring this... Yeah, but it won't get on the recording. Uh, hey, folks. Nate here. Uh, I feel like I just want to sit down and pick your brain for, like, hours upon hours. But one thing that particularly came to mind was... Uh, I think you described very briefly that earlier in life you had some uh, psychedelic experiences that were very meaningful to you. Where does the... 
uh, more recent, as in since the very early 2000s, Johns Hopkins, etc. Where does that sort of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, um, may maybe as directed towards PTSD or whatever it might be, where does that intersect with the, the work that you're doing? Complement, overlap, etc. Yeah, so uh, like, like Cam, I've been working with some PTSD um, clients who've got a lot of psychedelic integration work to undertake and often the dreaming process will interweave with the integration work. So they'll come in with chapters of dreams that they want interpreting and, and it's really quite surreal. One of them has a, a character called the imposter who comes into his dreams as well and tells him the next step to go on his path. And so his dreaming life is almost as uh, profound as his waking life, right? He's just constantly between, between worlds and experiencing other realities. Um, to be honest, it's a very personal thing, as Taryn mentioned. Um, not everyone is interested in dream work, but often when they find out that that's the topic of my PhD, they'll come in with, you know, textbooks full of dreams that they've been writing down for years and it really informs their trauma recovery and I'm actually seeing a lot of clients overcome their trauma via doing the integration work and the dream work combined but it's a long process because most of them present with very complex PTSD not just one isolated incident yeah does that answer your question yeah really helpful yeah Something that comes to mind to me there, which I think it, I think it's an interesting thought, is that in the case of dreaming, I think it's quite. I mean, it, I don't want to speak too generally for people. My sense is that it might be possible to get a little bit more distance in that recording aspect so say for instance a psychedelic experience particularly if it's with others i think it's just as rich it can be just as rich you know, with the energy of psyche painting and painted onto different we can say mythological motifs you know charged um projections of of different kinds but I can imagine it being, in many instances, very difficult to disentangle for the sake of recording, actually, what one is experiencing to get some distance from it because we're so caught up with the projective aspect. And whereas in the case of dreams, there's a sense in which, okay, I can practice and cultivate capacity to record what I've experienced. And at least there's this other kind of distance can be hard to even write them down. There's nothing I procrastinate more about, really, than writing down and then being in relation with dreams sometimes. Yeah, we'll come to you right in a second. Go ahead, Fiona. Yeah, it's just, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about my, my qualitative sample, and I recall that the nightmare sufferers woke in a state of hyperarousal and distress, and they reflected with intensity that they could recall all of the content of the nightmare. Um, whereas the people that didn't have PTSD, uh, they didn't wake up in a degree of distress and they were able to start 
meaning-making straight away. So there seems to be a difference in how the dream, how the dreams function is perceived between those that are having a recurring post-traumatic nightmare versus those who are meaning-making their dream as an adaptive process. Yeah. Yeah, that is super interesting. Uh, it's hard. It's very, very hard, isn't it, to get distance from the things which overwhelm us, that's yeah. for sure. So there was another question. Um, George, Cam, would you like to? I wanted to find out from your experience if there's a difference between regular dreaming through the night, uh, lucid dreaming where there's more participation and imagination. So Jung referred to dreaming in one of his texts, I can't remember which collected works it was, that dreaming is a form of creative imagination. So the, the activation process of the creation of the symbol and the archetype and the, the journey that one goes on when they're going through the night is akin to creative imagination. So it's a creative process. And lucid dreaming is, is next level conscious awareness that you're dreaming within the dream and you're aware that you're dreaming. So that lucid dreaming's quite disparate from ordinary dreaming throughout the night. Lucid dreaming, you're actually able to recognize that your hand isn't blue and therefore you are dreaming and you can c like control the next element of what happens in the story within the dreaming state. And then imagination is just the conscious process of, of dreaming, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I've got, a, I've got a backlog for you, Fiona. Can, <laughs> so, so one that um, so Anne and I were talking about earlier is, um, not to throw you under the bus or anything, but so I'll just put this on me, but I uh, assume that I dream, but I basically have no recollection of dreaming ever. And one of the things that we were speculating, given that sleep cycles tend to be thought of as coming in sort of 90 to 110 minute increments, um, what, is there any relationship that you've studied between, for instance, the quality of sleep cycles and the impact that that might have on dream states and sort of conscious recognition of dream states? Yeah, so the most vivid and recallable dreams occur in the REM state. And you generally want about three 90-minute REM cycles in a night's sleep. But here's the trick. If you are not recalling any of your dreams, but you start waking yourself up 30 minutes before you normally wake up, I can almost guarantee you will be in the middle of a REM state and you will remember with some, some element of the dream state. Yeah, I can almost guarantee it. You can hack it. Yeah, yeah. Hello, my name's Zane. Um, my question's about the psychoactive space. I've explored at great length psychoactives in many varieties and dream and have pretty good dream recall. So I'm curious as to whether or not you feel as if your psyche is essentially entering a same space as the psychoactive space and the I'm dream space. I'm so glad you raised this. Is there a remainder to the question or no, that's I'm it? I'm pretty happy to yeah. leave it out for the minute. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm so glad you raised this, Zane. So in 2001, a research study came out, and this is going to be, this inspired the title of my book, but that's another story. Um, 
psychedelics, psychosis and dreams all have the same neural activation in the brain. So whether you're tripping, psychotic or dreaming, it's all the same brain activation, which I found fascinating. So, yeah, that was – I can't reflect on the study now, but if you do a search in a, in a university library portal, you'll find the study. And they've done successive um, journal articles on that since, to my awareness. But, yeah – the psychoactive experience is indistinguishable from the dreaming experience and indistinguishable from the waking psychotic experience. Yeah, I've got a close friend who's a psych nurse and some of the stories she would tell me were incredible because I'm like, oh, I've dreamt that or I've experienced that on a psychedelic experience. And I mean, these people are unfortunately trapped in that world and unable to escape it, which is hence the you know psychotic episodes and stuff. But yeah, I always found it really interesting to find the relation between the different you know, psychic states you can find yourself in via dreams, psychosis and yeah. psychedelics and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all along a spectrum of experience and the interesting thing is is that, you know, psychiatrists tend to pathologise the person going through psychosis whereas the person on psychedelics that might be having a shamanic visionary experience is is disregarded as as something tangible do you think just then to follow on from that I've always sort of had this idea that people that are generally in these wards and stuff like that potentially thousands of years ago they would have been the witch doctors and the shamans and the wise women of the towns and everything like that and they would have been regarded as people communing with the gods and the archetypes whereas now unfortunately they're medicated and you know, told that they're sick and that yep. you know, what they're hearing and experiencing is not real and Carl a delusion. Jung, and Carl Jung would not have been able to write what he did if he didn't have eight episodes of psychosis. Yeah, the red book's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's all right. And also what you have with Jung is a tremendous capacity to bring the intellect to bear in the presentation of that which was initially experienced in that more visionary state so as to help develop a scaffold for people to join him in communicating about his experiences. And so I do think there's something to the, the necessity for discourse and the necessity for philosophy and, um, and, a, and a rigorous thinking that is necessary really to um, afford the psyche in its more shamanic you know, raw, chaotic sense to actually come into some type of adaptive relation today. It's, it's this relation, obviously, that the ordering aspect is super crucial. And at the same time, you know, there is, there is absolutely a time for that um, really stepping into the unknown, let's say. Yeah. And thank you, Tim, just wanting to acknowledge the Indigenous and cultural custodians of the land who have their own term of dream time and it's not just DMT it's actually going into the dreaming and doing a visionary quest and most indigenous cultures across the world have this kind of dream time process yeah beautiful well there's a couple more yeah a couple questions let's do two more oh let's we'll go two more we'll start with Vicky um Cam just there to the to the right I don't know which question to ask I've got you <laughs> Um, no, I think what comes up for me is just the thought of um, the right brain. 
So basically, like the organism coming into homeostasis and how like this is like a process of that. Like, just wanted to know if you can speak on that. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I think, um, you know, I love the metaphor of the dolphin who has two hemispheres and one's always switched on, one's always conscious. And in traditional Western ideology, the right brain is suppressed. It's the creative aspect. It's the seat of the soul. It's the area where we tap into the collective unconscious, yet the left brain is rewarded. Yeah, if you're rational, if you're logical, if you're competitive, you can get ahead. So I really feel that dreaming in particular, not just psychoactive experiences, but dreaming is a, a vessel or a portal for that right brain activation to come into homeostasis. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. So can I just ask another question on that? Because then what that leads me into thinking is that, like, in some ways, like, waking dreaming in the waking state is possible um, beyond, like, homeostasis, potentially. Yeah, but you're describing psychosis. Yeah, okay. Well... On According to the psychological model, that's not my judgment. That's the psychiatric model. Yeah, I think one thought here in its relation to this sort of the shamanic aspect, at least a lot of the meaning I have associated with, 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 the, with, with the shamanic incorporates this bridge-making faculty, right? So we, we have the capacity for the venture into the depths of vision and in the chaotic sense um, but at the same time as well a capacity to traverse the bridge that enables that ordered relation being crystallized not but but not to over fixate on it and so i think that's i so, so the question would then be is it possible to cultivate that more alive sense of recognizing yeah yeah is that Judy, is it? Your name, sorry. Oh, sorry, no, Vicky. Vicky, yeah. sorry. Um, just a, help, a really relevant quote that came up while I was witnessing you ask your question was Jung's idea of the schizophrenic drowning in the collective unconscious, whereas the shamanic visionary knows how to swim. And so, yes, conscious dreaming is possible, but it's an orientation that's been pathologized by the West. Yeah, so in traditional indigenous and shamanic cultures, the dream time is a normal um, initiation process of the 17-year-old. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I know there was... Okay, yeah, we'll go Michael and then we'll go just one at the back. Yep. I'll try and make it quick. Um, if you're listening to your talk, it really puts me into contact with a real sense of awe and wonderment um, and possibility and I'm just curious, you know, I mean, to me, that's just such a practical application that comes, like, after this talk, I want to go and sleep and just dream and because, you know, I'm stuck Yay. in the normal routine Yay. and I'm, de I'm detached from that. And so, yeah, I was just wondering if, there's, if you had any more comments or reflections on that, that real positive side, the possibility this presents for us when we get beyond the drudgery and, and really step into the meaning of what happened the night before, which we've yeah. lost contact with. Yeah, there's, there's a number of... Um Dreamtime herbs at the Happy High Herbs in Collingwood that can initiate lucid dreaming. Thanks, Mum. But blue blue lotus is one of them, and um, passion flower tends to be another one as well. So if you brew yourself a nice tea, you'll induce sleep quite quickly and induce a conscious dreaming state. 
I'm not, not sure if that's helpful. I'm just thinking practically now. Yeah. Yeah, but thank you. Your message really landed. Awesome. Uh, let's actually, there was a question at the back, if you're still still down, and then let's bring, we'll bring it to a close after this one. We'll do, we can come back for more questions at the end. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I'm going to backtrack a bit. You touched before on like how we're all connected through like the collective unconscious. Uh, is it possible to like dream on the behalf of others or process the emotions and feelings or even receive messages on behalf of others in your own dream? Or is it just like your interpretation of yeah, so I guess your own reality? So a, a soliloquy came to mind. If you imagine that you're an indigenous culture and you're communicating with smoke signals, right? When you dream, you can pass those smoke signals on through the web. Like, think of the collective unconscious as the www.internet of all things, right? So we're collected on this collective level by phones, but we're also connected in the ether, yeah? Like through a, through a connective um, morphic resonance. Yes, Rachel? So just what you said then about morphic resonance is the research, they've done the research with rats yeah. from one side of the world to the other. They trained rats to go through a maze and then rats on the other side of the world who had never been trained to do it were able to faster. do it quicker. quicker. Yeah. Did it faster. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, tingles, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And you've got to read the um, research about the dogs and their owners as well because that's beautiful. Oh, what's, Thanks, what's Rachel. That? Yeah, can you tell us about that? The dogs and the owners. Okay. So you know how dogs know, seem to know when owners are coming home and they're waiting? And the sceptics say, well, it's habit, it's routine. So they set up these experiments where they would... The, the, even the owner didn't know when they were going to be coming home. It was completely, you know, just Quintuple blind. Quintuple blind. Yes, and so as soon as the owner knew they were going home, the dog would go and wait at the door. But they didn't know beforehand when that was going to be. I've heard some particularly grim stories of like severely damaging the sensory apparatus of pigeons and then trying to get them to fly home. And then it turns out they can do some pretty pretty astute flying, even when they've had quite horrific things done to them. Anyway, I heard that. Rupert Sheldrake was speaking about that too. Yeah, so, like, even stuff like, they'll, they'll, you know, the pigeons are now blind, and then they, like, like just even change where their home is, and then they manage to fight. So anyway, yeah, it's so, these are such fascinating questions. There's so much interesting, you know, research into how to understand the, the ontology of field, the ontology of fields. And I think for the longest time, it's been difficult to present that. And I, and I still feel, to be honest, quite like I, I think there is, I genuinely think there is a lot lacking in discourse to really adequately um, provide a kind of reliable basis for referring to just what the it is that we're naming with notions like morphic resonance with fields, which is not to say there is not phenomena happening 
Um, it just there's a it, lack of research. It's 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 a research thing, and it's also very much pointing in the direction of paradigms that are opening up, right? They're, in in that sense, there there's we have this mixture of like profoundly ancient paradigms for understanding some of this, and at the same time, really new scientific efforts. You know, some of Michael Levin's work in relation to um, fields associated with cells um, at that level is super interesting. And um, certainly when it comes to, you know, metaphysics, I feel as though, I mean, thinking in terms of uh, relationalism and process philosophy and philosophy of organism, where fields are profoundly involved in scaffolding how we understand reality is something that's been available for a very long time even for the intellect to to relate with um but it is such a fascinating there's so much there's so much fascinating openness in all of this and it's um yeah i really enjoy it thank you so much fiona would thank you like you to join too. me in giving a round thank of applause you. that was really beautiful thank, thank you, you. All right, everyone, welcome back. So this is a part where I feel, you know, one day it would be great to have like some modular structure, you know, because this is the part where it's about sharing voice together. We already did that, did that a little bit at the beginning with the, the sort of the Q&A and what have you. Uh, we don't have too long left, but I do think it's nice to be able to come back together and just share a bit of voice from groups that you weren't a part of and just to hear a little bit of the energy and uh, inquiry that was presenced. Obviously, there's so much, you know, and so much richness that comes through. But the invitation's there to just share a little bit of that, the reflections on what's been said, what's not been said, um, what you care about, maybe what this leads you to consider. Moving forwards, uh, what we'll do, I think it probably makes sense not so much to put people on the spot up here, but we'll use the um, we'll use the roving mic again, and uh, and that might be nice. So why don't we just share in a little bit of silence together, and I'll just ask anyone who feels drawn to express a little bit of what came through in that conversation, or just reflections about the evening in general and where you're at as a being. You're most welcome to just signal that in some way. I might start since I have the mic. <laughs> um, just a very general observation of our group. I would say there's just a kind of general sense of excitement and interest in dreams. Um, people seem to want to explore it more and uh, people just seem to get quite excited, I think, when they talk about it. So there's like a real aliveness around it. And um, yeah, it seems like that's an energy that could be cultivated further to bring people together. Yeah, I do feel that there was, you know, in the age of technology piece, that framing that was part of this evening part of the intention with that was to try and situate this sense that there is something of a refuge to the dream and there's something there which I feel is well is certainly sacred and I I'm curious I, I've, 
I hope. I don't think I... I just want to be sort of careful with my words. It seems to me we can... I do think in life we can... It's funny, I was going to say the words protect the sacred, right? It's kind of interesting because I also know that you know, sacredness as such does not need my protection. And yet, and so that's partly this little tension trying to presence what I mean in relationship to that. It does seem as though there is something within our lookout if we, you know, so step forth in response to that call, which can treat with, can develop a relationship with ourselves that is not viable. In the same way that I think much of the other contexts in which psyche presences itself is, for sure, in the age of the digital, we know just what's possible in terms of propaganda that has always been present. Obviously, changes depending on sort of the technological age, the medium in which the communication is taking place. And certainly now, as we know it with AI and what have you, what's going to be possible in terms of pollution? in a very real sense, it's massively changing the dynamics. But there's something about going to sleep and relating with the nature of psyche that seems to be of a different domain to that, while at the same time, of course, the patterns which play out in the world that are in continuity with that which we encounter in dreams can nevertheless be maneuvered. You know, it's not like... It's not impervious to it, but nevertheless, there's something there. It seems like there's something about the natural intelligence we are which can build a strength in coming into relation with that. And, and I, I wonder if in hearing that, that excitement, I know it's kind of you know, pretty obtuse in some sense, I'm trying to not just find a link here, but yeah, I wonder if got to follow those little those little glistenings of that coming alive, that kind of excitement. Where can relationships build around that is strong in that sense? You know, what can we come to know about each other, with each other, as each other, that in some sense is the... Um, what's the word for? It's, an, it's you know, to be inoculated from something. Hesitate to say vaccinated, you know. <laughs> so anyway there's something in there there's something in that inquiry that uh, there's a beautiful and powerful thing anyway so it's it's awesome to open that up with you guys I'd love to hear something maybe from Jern your group in the back I don't think you've ever spoken forth in any of these Jern in any of these post sessions Ah, oh, no, 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 go on, give him that. I actually think you encapsulated precisely what we were speaking to in terms of the concern about how the technological age is distorting access to um, whatever's there in dreams. I know for me, I was thinking of them as some sort of sacred space.
You want to say something? Sure. <laughs> I guess I'm kind of totally riffing here at the moment, but Joan asked me about, we had this kind of discussion about the absence of meaning in contemporary society, or at least like how we observed it within the, the group. And Joan asked me that relationship to dreaming and he gave me a minute to think about it and I couldn't think of anything. And I just came up with a connection just then. And for some reason, like I was pushing the point that there is an absence of meaning and it's kind of, there's a sense of crisis in that. And relating that to postmodernism as a kind of sort of way of defining the area that we live in. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I feel like the point is defined in the Smiths song, please, please let me get what I want. Whereas the quote, haven't had a dream in a long time and how that somehow seems to convey a, a tragedy or a, a deep sense of loss. And maybe that kind of encapsulates my understanding and its relationship to meaning and dreaming. That sounds very rich. I'd love to explore that more. So, um, yeah, 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 yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, I just, Fiona, would you like to maybe come and take a seat up here? Just because once we do, it'd be lovely to throw it over to you. Go ahead, Anthony. Um, well, let's... Uh, wonder if I can find that quote again. Uh, I'll see if I can just uh, bring it up. Um, yeah, as we... Look, we, we went across many of these topics. One thing that occurred to me was... Um, and, and I think it speaks to that um, sacredness and, and the refuge, um, is that dreaming tends to have a timelessness about it. And we started talking about the dream time and then as synchronicity tends to happen, that, uh, I had only just last night shot off a screenshot from an excerpt uh, from a book on, on the dream time. And they said, well, in all of the Aboriginal languages, there is no word for time. Um, and so using the word dream time isn't quite right. We should be just saying the dreaming. Um, and the dreaming is both past, present and future. Um, and it connects with uh, what is around us, um, but it is also free from space. It is, um, it is all-encompassing and it is occurring at all times. And that in turn led us to this uh, idea that what's quite interesting that uh, at least from an Indigenous point of view there is this blending, there isn't this clear line between dream state and non-dream state. And I, I know myself, like I, I'm one of these people who I don't remember my dreams. I can count all the ones I've ever remembered on one hand in my life. Um, for me, sleep is off time and on time, right? And then I wake up and the clock is going and it's work. Um, and so there is something there around uh, 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 escaping the clock, <laughs> perhaps, and, and a greater integration of both time, of timelessness, or the, the, the blurring, the great blur between dream state, wake state, um, present, past, future, um, which is, uh, well, what did we say? We, at one point we attach, we, we sometimes attach things to the material and material things degrade. And so that triggers a kind of sense of mortality and finality to things. And, Maybe that's connected with the meaning crisis because we're in this rush to escape death and, 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 and live forever. Whereas in the dream, in the dreaming thing, we, we have the eternal. 
um, and and uh, the indefatigable and the 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 expansiveness and so suddenly you're in connection with something greater than yourself you're in touch with something that's infinite and as a consequence there's a again a refuge perhaps and um, that doesn't need protecting beautifully said thank you so you know it's obvious that like i would love to continue this you know um but we must draw to a close and uh, we will be returning again yeah, in a month's time. Just follow on the mailing list. Um, obviously, there's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these different places. Try to put things. But just check the website, voicecraft.io slash events. The next one will be on, um, be titled something around an interfaith dialogue. It'll be about reason, spirit, and progress. And, you know, um, one of the invited guests will be a local bishop who I happen to meet at a coffee shop, who has a presence, and that's a, one I feel is open to a deep exchange. And hopefully we can have some representatives of other religious traditions, as well as, you know, maybe dispositions that aren't, you know, fully affiliated with a particular well-known religion. Otherwise, there are ways to stay in touch with this, you know, it's like as a relational network and the people you meet here, um, many of them know each other, many of them get together. And so the invitation is very much to continue the conversation, just trying to figure out ways to get the structure together to reliably return so that there's some, somewhere to return to. Really try and create more of these contexts, obviously trying to figure out how to make it economically possible to get the space and the time and all of that is very much on the agenda so anyway it's really lovely to have your support and your support in returning again just sharing that energy and presence is what's going to help us be able to create these contexts you know to build a relational network that can gather and communicate about what matters and all that will be possible from that you know, really beautiful things it feels that way there's a number of us here who are really committed to seeing that realized and you're very much invited to contribute in spirit and with your literal body by showing up to that process as well and um and thank you for this last little bit of sharing um yeah so now in the final few minutes fiona i'd love to give you the opportunity just to share how you're feeling in relation to what's come through in all of this and i I'd love to hear, you know, I suppose what I'd be, one of the things I'd be most curious about, we can speak about it after or now, but I'm really curious about whether the, whether the spirit of interest and inquiry and dedication that you have for your current work, you know, if you feel that, you know, I ultimately, I just kind of putting you on the spot here, you're not really meant to ask these questions, but the thing I'd be most curious about is whether you feel that that, I hope I hope that's been met. You know what I mean. I hope that I hope that aspect of you has been met, and I'm curious in ways. In what ways have you seen that met? In what ways, you know? It's, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'm just curious about that, and maybe some of your reflections, on what we've explored in general. I think that might be now. Yeah. Oh yeah. The aliveness and excitement from tonight is is um quite contagious and and quite humbling and really lovely to see everyone with their presence this evening i'm very grateful 
Tim's very grateful, all very grateful. Um, I hope to submit in October. So um, the spirit of of the work and the dedication and the devotion is coming to an end. And um, to be honest, I'm done with it. I was done with it last year. <sighs> epic, epic. Um, but yeah, we'll be heading to the bar across the road if anyone wants to continue <laughs> the uh, conversation. Yes, nice one. So, Which one? Uh, just there. They're still open. Just there. Oh, is it? Okay, just out in the courtyard. Yeah, open. just, ne- just nice out one. in the courtyard. All right, great. Yeah, yeah let's do that um, then. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're most welcome. I'd love to get to know you a bit more. Beautiful. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.